Good morning, everyone. Can we thank our worship and tech team for that? So, so good. Well, we're glad that you're with us. If you're a guest today, we'd like to extend our warmest of welcomes to you. If Sunridge is your home, thank you, Jake. Uh, it's another beautiful day in the neighborhood. So, my name is Jed. It is a privilege to serve as one of our pastors on staff. And if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 4, which will be in a handful of minutes. And in Matthew chapter 4, we have this odd interaction between a stranger and a handful of brothers. And so as I was preparing this message, launching from that point, it reminded me of my own odd interactions with strangers in my life. So I'd like for you to raise your hand if you're an introvert like myself. Any introverts out there? Okay, that's a large majority of the crowd. Extroverts, take note of this. Those of us that raised our hands aren't trying to be rude, but you make it incredibly uncomfortable for us when we are just trying to go about our daily business and you want to strike up conversation about I'm not even sure what. I can think about odd interactions. I can remember a time when I was at a local Starbucks just down the road, and I was preparing for a sermon, and so my Bible is out, and a gentleman decided that he would come and sit across right from me in the open chair. There were many other open chairs in the establishment, and he said, I like the book that you're reading, and I said, what do you think about this book? And then it just went sideways from there. <laughs> He talked about how uh, there's this passage, which there is in Hebrews chapter 13, about being hospitable to strangers because you may not know that you're entertaining angels. It's a very ambiguous, odd place of scripture. And so we talked about how he really liked that one. But then he took it a large theological step forward. And he said, sometimes I don't think about angels. I actually think about Jesus and whether or not Jesus is physically here among us. I thought, okay. And he said, yeah, I mean, like, sometimes I look there or there, and I go, well, I wonder if that's Jesus or if that person's Jesus. And then his head tilted to the side, and he looked at me oddly, and I went, oh, no, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it. And he went, I wonder if you're Jesus. And I said, God, forgive me for this blasphemous conversation. I don't know how I ended it, but I ended it from there. So that's an odd interaction with a stranger. And then on the other end of the spectrum, I've shared this story before, so forgive me, but it's so important it sets us off for our discussions today. It was a time many years ago, about 15 plus years, when I was at the DMV, and I had just finished taking my written permit test. I was proud of passing that thing, and so I was sitting outside on a concrete bench, and my fingers were running along this concrete bench, and I can remember feeling the wax there that teenagers had left, delinquent teenagers like myself who liked to skateboard. It was a beautiful sunny day in Southern California. San Diego is a very diverse place, so here I am, a Filipino-American. To my left, two Mexican-Americans. To my right, an African-American, and we're sitting there quietly when the extrovert to my left decided that he would strike up a conversation with me, and he said, What's going on, little homie? And I thought, I'm doing pretty good. I just passed my driver's permit test. And he said, that's cool, homie. And then he proceeded to ask me what I did as a teenager. And so I shared, well, I go to high school. I play some sports. And then I got a little bold, and I snuck in, and I go to church. And that's what he latched on to. 
He talked about how when he was a kid, he went to church with his grandparents, and yet stuff happened in his adolescence, and he admitted that he got into gangs, and that he strayed away from that path. And so in that moment, he started asking questions about how I, as a high school student, could still have faith in Jesus. And so I started talking to him about God's forgiveness that was made readily available to us and how Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins and for the sins of the world could bring us right into relationship with God. And I sound a lot better saying that now because I'm a pastor and I'm sure as a kid it was like, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And so I'm attempting to articulate and share the gospel with this expert and his introvert friend who said nothing throughout the whole conversation. And at the end of it, he said, thanks so much for that, man. Uh, Maybe I'll consider going back to church someday. You keep doing what you're doing. And the whole time that we had had this conversation, I was getting pretty proud. I'm thinking, I'm I'm doing a good job here. I'm, I'm sharing the gospel. But to my right, this individual that had been sitting there quietly, as soon as they left, he decided that it was his turn to step into the conversation. And he asked me this question. What was Jesus' message? And so I'm sitting here thinking, I'm pretty sure I just, the cross, his death, burial, resurrection, the forgiveness, God's love for the world, all these things. And so I'm saying that back as confidently as I can. Then he asked me again, what was Jesus' message? And I'm sitting here like thinking, no, I'm pretty sure that's all I've ever been taught in Sunday school. Jesus and the cross and his death, burial, and resurrection. And so I say it one more time. It's not working. But that moment, uh, something changed. He was wearing these dark sunglasses, and he decided at that time to remove them. And I can still remember being a teenager, I was so intimidated and confused. I thought this person must be some well-versed atheist who's trying to just break me down. I don't know what I was thinking, but when he removed his sunglasses, I can remember looking deep into the warmest, kindest green eyes that I've ever seen in my life. And I felt at ease. In that moment, he said, son, look all around you. He said, you see the birds in the sky? You see this parking lot filled with people. He said, you can't necessarily see it. But I want you to understand something. Son, if you want to understand anything about Jesus, then you have to understand the kingdom. And he went on to share that before Jesus was executed on the cross, His primary mission and his language, his speaking, his message was the kingdom. And truth be told, up until that point in my life, I'm sure I'd heard those words before, but I'd never heard them so directly affixed to Jesus. I was so familiar with the cross and DBR, death, burial, resurrection, and God's forgiveness of sins, his love, but I had not learned to connect the kingdom yet. And that set me off on a journey. And to this day, I so wish that I could be connected with that gentleman. He ended up being a pastor at a local church, and I would give anything to find him and thank him 
for setting me off on a course where I could look at Scripture, particularly the Gospels and Jesus' teachings, through the lens of the kingdom. Uh, I think about how Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, right there in the middle of it, after talking about our worries and the things that we fear, he says, seek first the kingdom and its righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you as well. I think about how just a little bit later when he talks about asking and seeking and knocking, he's speaking about discovering the kingdom. And the reason why the kingdom is so important is because, as we'll discover in a little bit, if you've got a kingdom, well, there's going to be a king at the heart of it. So here's the question that we ought to ask ourselves. What is the kingdom? And what does it have to do with the gospel? We're in this series called Made Whole. We are attempting to look at the holistic nature of the gospel. In other words, we're trying to grapple with it as so much more than just our personal salvation because of and to Christ, and that is incredibly important. But the gospel, its depth and its width and its breadth, the beauty of it is it speaks to so much more than just the security I can find eternally by placing my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross and from the grave. It's so much more than that. And my friend on the bench reminded me, and he set me forth to consider and discover that Jesus Christ's self-revelation took place predominantly through the lens of this kingdom. And when we use the gospel in the kingdom, I'll show you here that in Matthew chapter 4, this odd interaction between a stranger who happens to be Jesus and two brothers begins to make things a little bit more clear for us. Matthew chapter 4 verse 17 says, From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people, traditionally fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And as he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, and paralytics, and he cured them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. There's a lot here. We've shared from the stage before that in verse 17, when Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near or is at hand, he's, he's issuing almost a cryptic invitation, a challenge of sorts. It isn't like a sidewalk preacher yelling, turn or burn, because the language here refers to a change of mind after you've experienced someone or something. And so when Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand or is drawn near, he's essentially saying, come and see. As you see several verses later, people are attuned to that. They start to follow. His fame spreads. But what exactly 
catalyzes this sudden movement for this stranger man who appears on the scene? How is he able to generate such great following beyond the fact that, of course, he's miracle working and he's healing, and that's pretty impressive? It lays within what we can't really see clearly in the English. It talks about Jesus proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And this is the very first time in our New Testament, in the second half of your Bible, where the word euangelion appears. Euangelion is what we translate to good news or gospel. Euangelion is also where we derive the word evangelism or evangelistic. And so the very first time that our language for the gospel is used in our Bibles is in connection, direct connection to Jesus proclaiming the gospel of the what? The kingdom. The good news of the kingdom. And so my friend who sat on that bench was rightfully asking me whether or not I knew what Jesus' gospel was. Jesus from the onset didn't yell and proclaim, I'm here to die for the sins of the world. Kill me now and let's just get it over with. That's not how it worked. In fact, we see throughout the Gospels almost a secrecy of his kingship, his messiahship, of him being the anointed one. And that's not on accident. Instead, he speaks of the kingdom. This is good news. You guys know what it's like to not be told good news? I think about it's happened to me. Uh, I can't think of a particular instance because I try not to remember times like these. But you know what it's like when you're sitting at a, at a meal with friends, people that love you, and you step away from the table at some point during the conversation, you make your way to the bathroom, and you look in the mirror, and lo and behold, there's spinach stuck in your teeth, right? And you're thinking, what in the world? Like, how did these people not tell me? And so you either do the sanitary thing and, and wash it off or wipe it off or eat a nasty thing and eat it again and go, mmm, yummy spinach. Um, and then you go back outside and it's like, what do you do? Do you confront these people? Do you ask them, do you really love me? Just letting me sit here with a spinach in my mouth? Can anyone relate? No? Okay, well anyways, I know what that's like. So apparently your friends are better than mine. We should have lunch sometime. That imagery of us having something stuck in our teeth or that's there that's pretty obvious to everyone else but we're acutely unaware uh, reminds me of what it's like for us to come to scripture there's something here there's a lot here and it's a lot better than spinach and we tend to miss it and there's no way for us to grasp the entirety of it there's literally no way for us to grasp the entirety of it. And I'm talking about the socio-historical context, the culture, the world that we are reading about, but we're so removed from. And someday when people talk about us and they read conversations about the Los Angeles Chargers, I don't know what they're going to think, but I know what that means. And that is not good news. That is terrible news. See, there's a whole world steeped into these pages that we have to at least try and become familiar with. So here, here's my confession. We could spend all day trying to set up the context for this, and I'm going to do a little bit in a moment, but maybe I'll confuse you. Maybe you'll lose track of where I'm going. Here's the reality. 
you don't need me. You don't need me to start exploring these things. And you may not have had the privilege of a kind stranger to probe and ask you questions, but we're all adults here, and, and I think we can handle stepping outside of this setting and not having the pastor or the speaker there and opening up our Bibles or using Google and citing commentaries and beginning to look into what Jesus is speaking toward. And so I would encourage you, no matter what you hear in this message, don't just take my word for it. And I'd perhaps encourage you, or I'm asking you, I'd implore you, I'm begging you, begin to start reading and discovering and searching and finding. So here's your next fill in the blank. We alluded to it earlier, but a kingdom, it requires land, people, a king, and everyday life. Now, everyday life part is what's important here. You see... When Jesus stepped onto the scene, he was speaking at a particular time and place to particular people. I mean, it was everyday life for them. Now, in a few months, we're going to celebrate Christmas. And you know, the Christmas story that we hear on Peanuts or Charlie Brown, right? When they read, and those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a censure should be taken. You remember that part? Caesar Augustus was a real person. <laughs> Historians would attest to him. Caesar Augustus is, in fact, one of the most important figures of our known history. Prior to him becoming the first emperor of what becomes the Roman Empire, 450 years, Rome had existed as a republic. And its existence as a republic is important. A republic refers to a governance that is supposed to be by and for the people. And so the Senate was the heart of that. And so for 450 or so years, this growing republic said, we can handle it. We're good governing ourselves. We can appoint two councils and our legislation from that point, we should be good. But people are people. And so Rome experienced multiple civil wars and instability throughout those 450 years, and it began to become incredibly hostile toward the end of it when a man named Julius Caesar decided, you know what, this is, this is too much. I'm just going to take it for myself. And so Julius Caesar attempted to gain all the power and authority. He attempted to do what was not possible before in the entire history of his people. And so he tried, and he was assassinated for it. I mean, he got pretty far, but he was eventually killed. And on his deathbed, there were enough people who had seen him as an important figure that a large majority or percentage at least of the population started to see Julius Caesar as something other than just a mortal man. They deified him. They referred to him as a god. And at that juncture in history, his stepson Octavian saw this as a great opportunity to do what his stepfather could not do and actually take the keys for the kingdom himself. And Octavius became who we know as Augustus, Caesar Augustus. Augustus means exalted one. And Augustus decreed that he was the son of the divine because Julius Caesar was a stepfather. He had the rights to this kingdom and the people, they went for it. 
He was a strong military commander. He had great administrative giftings. And so under Augustus, Rome transitioned to an empire where he was solely in control. And the word euangelion was actually used to propagate Augustus being of divine nature. So in the Roman calendar, his birthday would signal good news for the entire world. And the idea that Rome's stability and its peace with the gods directly went through Augustus and his ability to be appeased by the masses, their sacrifices to him, their coinage that would say Augustus is Lord and Savior. Them going to the temple and the imperial cult embellishing this idea that he was supreme. It was everyday life for the people. And so when Jesus is born, when God decides to break into human history, what we know as the incarnation, the word becoming flesh and dwelling among, among us. It's not some random time in history where God's like, all right, I think this is a good time. We are talking about the height of socio-political and religious work. Uh, humans with echoes of the garden saying, we're good. We don't really need the pantheon of gods anymore because we have traversed that ourselves and we have a figure now who can give us the peace, the stability, the good news that we have never had. And it's going to come through Augustus. Are you guys catching how perhaps the message of Jesus was a little subversive? By the time Jesus enters into public ministry, Augustus's son, Tiberius, is now the emperor. And Tiberius was an interesting man. He laid claim to the divine, but he was a little bit more removed than his father. Uh, Tiberius, you'll find it in your New Testament, the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus called his first disciples. It's also known as the Sea of Tiberius. And so again, my friends, the political language here that Jesus is using is so, so thick. And so we can look at this language and go, oh yeah, the kingdom, you know, it's, it's now and not yet. And we can just spiritualize it, which there are great dimensions for us to operate in when it comes to spiritually looking at the ramifications of this now and not yet upside down kingdom. I get that. I've preached it before, but it's important for us to look at the spinach, to get in the mirror and go, wow, I've been eating this all up without realizing that there's so much density of nutrients here. Jesus speaks to everyday life. But here's where things get wild, right? It's your next fill in the blank. Jesus Christ, he's both the expected and unexpected king. See, the expected part, we can read into our scriptures and see all of the ways that Jesus fulfills prophecy after prophecy. We can see himself saying, today these things are fulfilled in your sight, right? He comes to bring good news, proclaiming good news to the poor, healing the blind, uh, the sick. Jesus, uh, we can see that. But the unexpected part is really where we ought to look into more because messianic expectations, so the expectation that a Messiah, a Redeemer, an Anointed One would come, really had to do with a physical kingdom being established in Jerusalem and then the end of times coming and God judging all of the surrounding nations and there being this new way of living and existing in the world. 
that there would be this reestablishment under the Messiah of the way that it was intended to be in the garden. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you've heard Britt talk about how it was supposed to be this way. It was so broken, and now here we are. And what's so confounding about Jesus, and we grapple with this today, is that there is no messianic prophecy about an ascension. The Messiah was supposed to come and just establish it. It's why Jews today can look at Jesus and go, he was a great prophet, a rabbi, a teacher, but he was not the Messiah. We don't have all the time in the world to dig into the implications of that, but what is critical for us to see is that Jesus, his unexpectedness in the way that he goes about teaching and who he is with and what he says, and then ultimately his death on the cross, that paves the way for him to be the unexpected triumphant king. No king is supposed to die like that. In fact, when Jesus tells his disciples, like in Luke chapter 9, the Son of Man must undergo great suffering, that he must be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes and the rulers and killed, and then he talks about his resurrection. I mean, they don't want to hear that. Then when he talks about how if any of them are ashamed of him, when the Son of Man comes in all his glory, he'll be ashamed of them. And he speaks that they have no idea what Jesus is speaking about. Excuse me. They have no idea. Because for Jesus to go these three years and speak about the kingdom, which would have been so politically charged and yet so practically worked out with the most odd of groups, the social rejects, the poor, the untouchables, the unclean, I mean, it made no sense. He walked this odd line where he really couldn't be accepted by his own people, the Jews, because he did religiously unclean things. And then on the other end, with the empirical, imperial powers, it, he was becoming this threat. And so his execution, as my friend on the bench would have shared, he was crucified because of what he talked about. And when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that you crucified the Lord of glory, he's saying people killed him. And even though it was God's plan to send his son, and even though God saw and knew the cross, his perspective of it is what makes Jesus so unexpected of a king. The unexpected nature is that no king should go and sacrifice themselves innocently. Kings don't do that. That's absurd. I mean, I, could, I don't have all the adjectives in the world to talk about how that makes no sense, and yet what we celebrate as Christ followers three days later, his resurrection, and then his ascension, his commissioning to go and make disciples of all nations, all of these things set up what we live in today where Jesus Christ is victorious. He is king. He has defeated death. He has defeated sin, and yet... For some reason, we find ourselves in this in-between of his physical return with a world that still looks so messed up. In the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about how 
The gospel speaks to issues concerning race and, and the distinctions between poor and wealthy. And then I'll be up in a few weeks talking about religion. And there's so many things in our world that seem to say that Jesus Christ isn't king. How could he be king? If he were king, it wouldn't look like this. So here's what we really need to remember. This would be the transition point. The whole gospel, the whole of the good news is Jesus Christ. He's the good news. And I could say that over and over and over again, but like I encourage you to do earlier, me telling you that Jesus is the good news won't be good news for you unless you yourself begin to grapple with what the Holy Spirit is presenting to you, that Jesus Christ is good news. Not just at some point in your past, not just hopefully something in the future, but he is good news right now. And that is outlandish and it flies against everything that our world wants to tell us and propagate to us. That everything is either so terrible and we need to escape it or everything is peaceful and good and there's nothing to worry about. No, the whole gospel is Jesus Christ, which means that there is something for us today. I want to read to you from Colossians chapter 1. I'm so appreciative of Pam, our women's ministry director, who's doing a study midweek in Colossians. They're studying. Pam, I love hearing about that week in, week out. So encouraging. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 says this, He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. In other words, peace doesn't come by killing other people. Peace doesn't come by saying that you're divinity yourself. No, 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 no. Peace comes by God emptying himself and making him himself nothing, becoming in the nature a slave. And then submitting himself, being obedient to the methods of execution found in the world at that time to demonstrate that power is not found when you puff your chest and you say, I am the king. No. It comes in the unexpected, surprising, low, hurtful, painful, submissive way. And Jesus being the head of our body speaks to him, not operating like the head of other political institutions or systems that say, all things are great, don't worry about it. Or all things are terrible, so you have to trust us more. Jesus Christ is the good news. I have this way that I like to do laundry. I like to try and get all the things into the dryer. But I don't mind if stuff falls, because, you know, that's okay. And when I do laundry at home, me and, me and Mallory, I mean, our house is just filled with laundry all the time. It's like there isn't enough 
clothes for us, and so we, I don't know, we keep buying more, or people drop off more, I don't know how it happens, but we need to burn some, or give them away, because there's too much, so when I do laundry, I don't sort stuff anymore, I mean, all the colors, all the jeans, all the shirts, from 2T all the way to adult extra large, like everything's in there together, and so when it beep, beep, beeps, and it's time to move those things, I open up the washer, and the dryer's conveniently next to it, and I open it up, and I put them in, and then when the dryer beep, beep, beeps, that's where the fun begins. I open that sucker up, and I squat down, and boy, I'll tell you, I grab all of it. I mean, I, I, all those things. And if, if socks fall, or I'm just picking it up, and I am going to, I'm going to gorilla my way to our couch that's always filled with laundry, because we never fold it, and just drop it there. And I do a similar thing with our groceries. Uh, when I go grocery shopping, I like to show off how strong I am to myself. When I park my vehicle and I walk to the front door, I want to make sure that every single grocery bag, all 15 of them, I'm carrying with two hands. And, you know, you guys, anyone else do that? It's so ridiculous, right? Yeah, thank you. We take it to the door and we have to put it down <laughs> and open it up. And it's like the amount of time that we spend doing this with the laundry or this with our, it's like we could just take several trips. We want to hold all of it. I've got two great friends here, Heather Fretz, Courtney Hall. They talk about all the things. They talk about how some people, they can handle all the things. Like it's impressive that they can, they can do it all. But then they can also say all the things as in, and how are we going to do all the things? We want to believe that we can handle and carry all the things. But my friends, we know we can't do it. But it says, he himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So if there's someone that can handle all this dysfunction and all the mismatching and all the craziness, I'm pretty sure I know who that person is. And it ain't me, and it's not you. It's Jesus Christ. So let us roll through our last bit here. Jesus Christ is not overwhelmed by holding and transforming. Here's the first one, past, present, and potential. He's not overwhelmed. He's not overwhelmed by what's in your history. He's not overwhelmed by the stuff that's overwhelming you right now. And he will not be overwhelmed by all the things that haven't because your potential, the truths of your reality and what you will be, you being conformed to the image of the Son, all of that exists in and through Jesus Christ and the power of his Holy Spirit. He's going to do it. But you've got to choose to submit yourself to his kingship, to his lordship, and follow him. In that. Isn't it great? Again, earlier I talked about Luke chapter 9, where it alludes to the Son of Man coming in his glory and being ashamed of those who are ashamed of him. But how great is it that after Jesus rises from the dead, the people who were ashamed of him are the ones that he is inviting back around his charcoal fire, right next to the Sea of Galilee, where they first heard him beckon to him and his invitation to follow him. How great is it? That instead of them being ashamed or him pushing guilt on them for how they fled and, and how they dismissed him when he was being crucified, he invites them back, and in particular, Peter. And I am so glad that the legacy of our church begins with people who in a really crazy time said, I can't handle this, no way, I'm not with that man anymore, and yet they're the ones that Jesus sends out. We're here because of those guys and gals. That's pretty incredible. So here's the next fill in the blank. Jesus Christ, he isn't overwhelmed 
to hold and transform our faith and doubt. Now, doubt can be a bad word to us. And we see passages of Scripture like James talking about how we shouldn't be double-minded, how we shouldn't doubt. Jesus himself tells his disciples, why do you still doubt? Why do you have such little faith? But can I show you how the Great Commission sets out? Matthew chapter 28, the closing scenes of our very first gospel. It says this in verse 16, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Verse 17, When they saw him, they worshipped him, semicolon, but some doubted. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Jesus Christ, he just died, rose from the dead. He is standing in front of you physically, literally, and this is the time where you're not going to be sure? So you're going to worship him, but then, I don't know about this guy. Maybe he's a hologram. I don't know what they were thinking, but if there were any time in history for doubt not to be present, it probably should have been there, and yet, it's here. This is recorded, and it's not by accident. Uh-uh. And then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. That's how this movement got started. So I'm pretty sure the questions that remain unanswered, I don't have to pretend like I've got all of them. I'm telling you, I haven't upstairs intellectually reconciled all the things, but I'm not really trying to do that anymore because I'm convinced that Jesus Christ as King is inviting me to do a lot more than just ruminate or speculate about all the things that I can't fathom. There's a life that he's calling me and you to live. Here's your second and last fill in the blank. Jesus Christ, he isn't overwhelmed by holding and transforming our contradictions, hostilities, and limitations. Now this is huge. Because the way that we have set things up in Christianity today seems to propagate this idea that we're pretty good. That there's no need to fear for us. If we're in, like, we're good. And the rest of the world, they're in trouble, but at least we're in Christ and, and things are good. That's not exactly what being in Christ should cause us to have an attitude and disposition. When I am in Christ, when I have professed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I become more and more increasingly aware of my deficiency, my sinfulness, my brokenness, my lack, my utter need and dependence on Him. It's Him, not me, ever. And so I am a contradictory person by nature. I'm consistently inconsistent in consistent places. There are people who see me in one light and people that experience me in another. And I'm not saying that's the way it should be. I'm just telling you that's the way it is. And every single one of us operates underneath that guise where we want to project that we are consistent and whole and that Jesus is king and we live like that every single second and moment of the day. But my goodness, if you hooked up any of our brains to a vat and a screen, you would know 
this lifestyle of thinking upstairs, there's a lot of work that God's still doing. And that I'm attempting to submit myself to. So why do I bring that up? If Jesus can handle my contradiction, the hostilities that we create, the barriers that we put up in front of ourselves, the lines of demarcation that we want to set up so that others would be out and we would be in. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. In his flesh he has made both groups, he's referring to Jews and Gentiles, into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. He's abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off and peace to those of you who were near. For through him both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are also built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. He himself is our peace. Augustus couldn't lay claim to that. He could say it. He could propagate it. But when the first Christians said Jesus is Kyrios, when they said Jesus is Lord, they were saying Caesar is not our God. And today we ought to remember that just like them, there is no political power, there is no world dominion, there is nothing that falls outside or beyond the scope of Jesus Christ's sovereignty. It's all His. It was all created by Him and for Him and through Him. It's supposed to be purposed in Him. And today when we find ourselves amidst many political and socioeconomic systems and racial systems and religious systems that continue to hold people down or oppress, and we wonder what God is doing, we remember that when we are citizens of the kingdom, we get to disrupt from within because that's what Jesus did. We're invited to that. So here's your final fill in the blank. Jesus Christ is inviting me, write this down, me to participate in his kingdom. And typically, I like to go plural. I would generally say Jesus is inviting us, and that's the reality. He is inviting us. But the reason why I'm asking you to write down me is because we have to personally, before we can get to all of this, consider what he is asking us as a person to bring him and his lordship into Jesus Christ is inviting me, he's inviting you, and he can handle. So whether you're a baby boomer or a millennial, those terms, those groups, we made that stuff up. If you confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will not just be saved someday, God can begin to save you right now. If you're black, if you're white, if you're brown or any other color, those categories that we created 
You can place your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ as king. If you're politically liberal or politically conservative, we made up those categories. And I can guarantee you that if you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and King, you will be saved. And God will continue to save you. And if you are struggling with any type of sin, I don't care whether or not it's incredibly public or private, if you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and saving, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved and God can begin to save you right now. Young, old, rich, poor, black, white, gay, straight, liberal, conservative, male, female, rich, poor. I could list off category after category, stuff that we've created Jesus Christ is here to break down that stuff. Did you hear it in his word? He's attempting to create one new humanity, and that new humanity cannot and will not be created so long as we, as individuals who are in him, act like he's not trying to do it. He's trying to do this, and he will accomplish it. And I don't want to say with or without you, because that's not how Jesus operates. He's inviting you to disrupt from within. So let's do that. Let's submit to his kingship, to his lordship. He is savior, deliverer. He's triumphant. It's all for him, by him, through him. We belong to it. It's all his. Let's get after it. Let's pray.